computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to Intelligent Performance, where we are fanatical about excellence and champions of ambition. And today it's my pleasure to welcome Andrew O'Keefe to the podcast, and we're going to be taking a look at the origins of leadership, because many of you might be leaders, you might have teams that you're coordinating or running, but have you ever really spent any time thinking about where does our model of leadership come from today and what's most prevalent? Well, so Andrew spent the last decade or so really going deep on leadership, and most recently he spent his time traveling around speaking to indigenous um, and tribal cultures all around the world, from Africa, across to North America, and over across to New Zealand, and taking a look at what are the First Nations approach to leadership, how do they navigate leadership challenges and what are some of the lessons we in the business world can take from these First Nations and what are the things we've effectively got wrong. So it's an amazing conversation. I love talking to Andrew and it's a pleasure to have you listen on this. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's dive straight in. Where I'd love to start is to hear about what sounded like a phenomenally transformational uh, curiosity sparking safari. So why don't you take us on this journey with you? You know, where were you? How did you get there? And, and what kind of led to this epiphany uh, on your trip? Yeah, my wife, Jude, and I, in early 2016, were visiting Kenya, was through Africa and into Kenya and on safari at that point. And I just thought it'd be interesting. My background's in leadership in workplaces. And I thought it'd be really interesting to get a different perspective on leadership by talking to some Maasai elders because their social systems and therefore leadership system has been unaffected by the Western world, even though that part of Kenya or that part of East Africa was colonised. Um, they were proudly continued their social system and therefore leadership. So in planning the trip, I just reached out and made arrangements to talk to some Maasai elders. Wow. And it was just the most amazing thing to sit down and talk with people with a different perspective. And the most amazing part of that was that when I got around to asking them, so Michael, your chief, are they a good leader? They would uh, well up with it with tears just wow. thinking about this beautiful person in their life. And wow. I said to them, my, my key contact, Nagila, Masai showing us around, Nagila, I don't know many workplace leaders who trigger that reaction. How do you get leadership so right? And so that then, then led off. That curiosity then led to a passion of investigating this uh, whole subject of First Nations leadership. So I'm really curious. So, so what, what, well, first of all, then maybe let's start with the origins of leadership. So what what do we have what, right now in the Western world, as we call, let's say in Australia, to make it simple, what is the what is the prevalent form of leadership? What is it? Is it from what comes from military, or is it is it more driven by the Bible, or, or what would be the kind of what have we got at the moment? Perhaps Andrew is to start. Yeah, so back back home in Sydney after that trip, and just talking to that one one society, the Maasai, I was walk having an afternoon walk around the bay where we where we lived at the time in Sydney, and it just it was just a stunning reflection on our approach to leadership in workplaces. And yeah, in, in my career, I just realized I just hadn't come across this whole approach to leadership based on First Nations wisdom. And what then occurred to me in, in reflecting and investigating that, and I realized that 
that when the captains of industry started organisational leadership investigating workplace leadership in the early 1900s, so we had the Industrial Revolution starting in the north of England in the mid to late 1700s that then moved into continental Europe in the 1800s. And then organisations got to a level of complexity come you know, the early 1900s that then they realised they needed to almost get some discipline, some scholarly work around workplace leadership. And so we had, for instance, Harvard Business School only set up its business, Harvard University set up its business school in 1908. And the key scholar that they relied on was a person called Frederick Taylor. And he, he came up from his investigations and research came up with an approach called scientific management. Right. Now, what I'll, what I'll lead to is that, that our leadership thinking, our systems, our tools that we now have, you know, in this part of the 21st century, that they, they have this, this foundation building block 100 years ago without uh, with, with ignoring or without taking into account and the knowledge that had been developed through the millennia of First Nations leadership. And so this, this approach of scientific management was really a, a command and control. Right. There's a role for, for people called managers and every day they'll direct the manual workers that the typical manual worker in the eyes of Frederick Taylor, and I think he had some psychological hang-ups, was that we all we need is a bright like to quote his work uh, all we need is a is a bright gorilla and uh, we can teach people to do the work that's required of them and so you know that management by control by direction by aloofness by arrogance by direction so so many of our our concepts and then that leads on to tools and practices mm. is is based on on that uh, starting starting point, and um, you know, as we'll talk now about First Nations leadership, the approach is fundamentally different, and mm. that opens up a whole uh, a whole other lot of possibilities. And um, and it would have been good if you know the, our grandparents, great grandparents, in some cases, starting work in the early 1900s, paid attention. But nevertheless, it's worthwhile. Never too late to pick up and start applying wisdom that we come across fascinating so tell me what are the key differences that you've you've found in terms of um and maybe a probably more confrontational way of saying it is what have we got wrong that's what i'd love to know a, a big fundamental one is the use of power so in first nation societies then power is really in the hands of the followers in workplaces organizational mm systems, the power is in the hands of, of the leader. And that, that's in small business who's, where the leaders will typically also be the owners or in larger uh, businesses and organisations, then uh, the power is in the hands of the board and the chief executive type. And that translates into patronage to leaders further down in the organisation. And so yeah, when we flip the, the power relationship in the hands of followers versus the hands of patronage and, and the leaders, then it leads to some self-correcting elements of the system and leads to, and, and ultimately, isn't it, that's the purpose being in, in either in our social system and so society such as 
in the way we live our lives or in First Nations societies or also in the social system of work, it's just having a happy, productive pace, place where people can enjoy being together and do good mm. work. So what, what's the best leadership approach to get people who are happily spending time together and being productive? Interesting. So, so you're talking about from the people perspective, so the Maasai approach, the first leaders approach is what to him to leave the people to make the decisions? Is that what you're saying? Is that to, um, does it work in like, you know, practical example perhaps like whether they're going to build a new uh yes a good clarifying question now where, where it where it begins and leads to is things like who gets to be appointed as a leader so the leader yeah good clarifying uh the the leader in these first nation societies are still making the decisions that we would imagine that they would make right um and and that allows just as an aside that allows the or the, the society the organization to function really productively. So we've got a, a leader at a certain level um, and then they report to a divisional leader. Let's say in the Maasai, there's a higher level leader or in a workplace, there's a team leader, there's a department leader, there's the chief executive. That, that structure uh, allows good decisions, hopefully good decisions, allows decisions to be made in a productive way. Um, the, the, where the followers, the power of the followers comes in is things like uh, who gets to be appointed as the leader mm, wow. in workplaces uh, somebody with the power uh, the chair of the board or the chief executive or the department head they decide for themselves because this is where the arrogance comes from over the last hundred years yeah that um, I've, I've got the power and I've got the knowledge says the boss whether it's a team leader or a chief executive appointing somebody that I, I can I can decide and there's this blind spot. Now, then when I asked the question of Nagila, how do you get leadership so right? Yeah. So what, one of the elements then was, well, I said, how, like, how do you go about appointing the leader? They must be so skilled and leads, to, leads it turns out to be they're careful about who they appoint. So whether, whether we look at the, the Maasai, when a group of young warriors are put together, teenagers, then it takes two to three years to choose the leader of that warrior group who's going to stay their leader for the duration of their life as the age group ages. But the, the elders, the role of the elders is to guide and coach the warriors who the warriors choose to be their leader. So that, that says the followers have a huge investment in who's to be appointed. A group of people just aren't going to appoint someone who's a dill yeah. who's who either uses their power brutally or underuses their power in a passive way that can be frustrating yeah. for a different reason yeah. it's a much better filter than otherwise. yeah and so then or in the mohawk i visited one of the 11 societies i visited was the mohawk nation near montreal whose traditional lands are upstate new york in this case the clan mother representing the community or the followers she makes the decision who's to be appointed as the next leader when the position's vacant. And she's choosing someone who she's kept her eye on for years. One of the clan mothers I spoke to, you know, she, she's got her eye on, and she uses an example, a 12-year-old who's showing the sort of character who might one day serve the community well as, as the chief. Um, in very small societies, societies based on very small groups, such as the Bushmen in the Kalahari, uh, then 
now they that the followers have the power not so much to choose the leader in this case but whether they stay as as part of that band or camp or or bail out resign if you like vote with their feet and go and join another group yeah. um so the the power of the followers in this case is yeah not in not in necessarily task allocation um resolution of of issues um not necessarily who gets to stay in the group although they do they do have influence in that but it's really those those key questions around like fundamentally who gets appointed to work to be our leader and if if this the other example would be if the if the leader steps out of line or doesn't use their power well then there is power amongst the followers systems the followers have to do something about that so i'm wondering andrew is that is the democratic system an example of that do you feel like do you look at what's the new south wales elections just ticked over and that's all in the headlines at the moment like is that an example of the followers do you, do you feel or or, or not because it kind of kind of sounds a little bit like that the power sits there and but all, we do we do get to have our say don't we in a in a yeah, when millions of people are involved was it churchill sure. who said democracy is not perfect but it's the best we've got yeah so and i i personally feel very good once every three four or so years four years in the case of new south wales you know i get to go to the uh, to the ballot box and cast my vote i, I think that is yeah as um as um, as close as we can probably be in uh when millions of people are involved so is the real challenge then actually more at a corporate level? Because when you were describing followers selecting the leader, and I'm thinking at me as a you know, operating as a business owner, I was like started to sweat. You know, I was like, my God, imagine like, you know, and I would lose because I would my what was there is that you appoint people or you think about people you, to, who can help further your vision and and your expression of what that company would look like and go on to do. Whereas that may be quite contrarian to you'd think well maybe maybe not the kind of I guess the concern would be that the people who are selected by your employees would would not be you know or wouldn't they might actually encourage laziness or, or whatever it might be. yeah you know like um, yeah the, uh, people people just won't won't do that people you know in in the workplace you, know, you just you want to be energized uh, you want to be decently treated uh, you you want to make make improvements um there can be blind spots. One of the one of the challenges for smallish businesses is where the the leader is also the owner. Then there can be there can be some blind spots both in how you as the business owner and leader use your power. The challenge there is that there's probably nobody in that case who's there to observe and counsel you and and give you good advice. Yeah. Um, the, the other one is that, that that you can have blind spots in perhaps not picking up the signals of where power might be poorly used by a lower level manager. I once did some investigation for a smallish business, 25, 30 people, and um, the, the people in the factory were complaining about uh, this person that they, they called the little Hitler. Now, the business owner could not believe that this person treated people the way that he apparently was. At least, at least the business owner was approachable enough that 
he'd got to hear that there were some issues by the looks. And so he asked me to investigate and I met with people individually and there were just horrendous stories. This, this character, the, the head of the leader of the production group, he played the game by managing up well, which as long as you keep the patron, in this case, the business owner happy and, and conceal the way you're really treating people. Uh, whereas, you know, when the stories that I heard and the evidence that I was given by the people who reported to him, you know, it was just horrendous. And, mm. um, and then when I, when I shared those results with the owner, you know, he, uh, he said, well, I, I had no idea it was like that. But also he then, he then took appropriate action because it was, the business was suffering, uh, let alone, you know, indecent treatment of people. Mm. So, yeah, he, he took action, but it, it's an example of a blind spot that can happen in small to medium businesses where the owner is also the leader. Mm, interesting. So I'm curious about, let's go back to your research. So it sounds like you went to 11 different tribes. Mm. Tell us about that. Like, what was it like, first of all, meeting? How did they respond? Like, were they, were they welcome that you were finally curious? Like, <laughs> we've done a great job of just you know, uh, they obviously got it wrong. So what was that like? And and it also sounds like there there were quite stark differences between different groups, which I guess you would expect more diversity of approaches. Is that is that Was that right? Or how did that actually kind of yeah. play out? Yeah, the, the, so the, the 11 societies were across Africa. So four, four in Africa, including the Bushmen in the Kalahari and the, the Maasai, and then in Australia, Aranda around Alice Springs and Pintabi, who are on the border of Northern Territory and Western Australia, mm. uh, Māori obviously in New Zealand, uh, down the Amazon to meet a couple of groups there and then up wow. through the Northern Pacific of Canada, so on the Pacific, far North Pacific coast, the Haida Society, and then near Montreal, as I've mentioned, the Mohawk Society. And people were just so welcoming, just so welcoming and when I reached out, for example, to the to the Mohawk group, uh, the person instantly responded, uh, "Wow, yes, thank you so much that you would include us in your research." Or the in the Himba people in Namibia, in Africa, uh, you know, just yeah, really welcoming, um, very engaged, and almost like curious to be to be involved that someone was interested in inquiring, mm. and, and overall the. You know, the warm feedback was that, wow, we're just so, so appreciative that, you know, our, the wisdom of our people, which, you know, they would mean the old people um, that handed down to them, that, that the wisdom of our people is being shared with workplace leaders who, uh, that it might help them. Yeah. Uh, that, that to your point about differences, the differences comes in the level in which the society is organised. So whether they're organised like, uh, Pintabi, which are uh, Aboriginal people in the Western Desert of Northern Territory, WA, where the environment can't and couldn't handle or support really large organised groups, then they were in small family groups or maybe for festivals and like gathering groups of 30 or 40 people. Mm. Uh, in the Kalahari groups of up to family groups, but then in bands of up to about 25 to 30 um, in some cases, villages like in the Amazon, where larger groups of people could be supported because of the productive environment, groups of up to about 120. And then 
the, the Mohawk society with the wider confederacy that they formed a thousand years ago or joined a thousand years ago, uh, the Haudenosaunee confederacy, in traditional times, their society was about 25,000 people. Wow. So that leads to the difference is if you're a human group organized around 25 to 30 people, mm. up, to, up to many thousands, then it does lead to differences, but also some common and fundamental leadership dimensions. Mm. And what were, what were the most surprising things that stood out from your perspective? Uh, what so, were you, you go in thinking that, oh, yeah, it's obviously going to be like this and actually... What did you have the change of mind on? Uh, so, so I had a change of mind on uh, the ritual associated with appointing a leader. Right. So in certainly the societies organised at a, at least a mid-level, but then now we can come back to, to the groups organised at a smaller band level. In, in the medium to, to large organisations, if you like, these societies, then they made a great ritual about the appointment of a leader. Mm. And that that was challenging to me that that you know I come from an egalitarian bent and uh, I still feel as though I was right in the days when I worked in manufacturing that having a separate canteen or cafeteria for management uh, versus the troops uh, that 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 was not a decent way to to lead or, or design lunch lunch breaks. Uh, but in these in these societies, there's a ritual, and the value of a ritual and the ceremony around that is the signal of the importance of being appointed as a leader. If you're if you're being appointed to the leader of a team or the leader of the organisation or the leader of a division, you know, mid, at a mid level, mm. then yeah, I have changed my mind and think there is important messaging there for both the leader and for the followers to say to the leader, particularly to the leader, and it might even be just taking time out with the leader. Mm. So just don't make the appointment and announce it by email. Talk to, the, talk to that new leader about why they got appointed. Yeah. What does leadership mean? Start setting the standards. Share some examples of stories of your leadership journey and leaders you've worked for in the past that you've modelled yourself on and like all of us leaders that we've worked for, that we took the lessons of what to avoid and you could notice that didn't work in a leadership characteristic and style. Uh, so, yeah, so that was, that, that was, that was one. One, one. One big similarity is that each of these societies has leadership as we pretty much would recognise it, which then says even if you're a small band of 15, 20, 25 people, there's a leadership role that we recognise. And, and part of that is, you know, who gets to join the that group that's coming together, not who gets to join the family in terms of uh, direct relatives, but who might get to join the group or who gets to stay or there'd be discussions about task allocation. Uh, the next day, who's going to go hunting, who's going to go gathering, who's going to stay and look after the little kids or the older people who can no longer, who can no longer engage in the task of collecting. So there's a person who leads that discussion. Another big common attribute of leadership in all of these societies, you know, which, which is just a reminder about the important role of leader in workplaces, is the resolution of quarrels or differences or mm. arguments. Mm. Uh, that, uh, that, you know, one of, the, one of the older Bushmen that I met, wow, fancy, Michael, meeting people who lived the life of their ancestors. So 
So I met three Bushmen in the Kalahari who'd grown up teenagers living the old life. And they so they could, they, one of the stories they told was, yeah, needed someone to resolve differences. Like, remember, we had poison arrows. And, and if the if the argument or the or the difference of opinion wasn't resolved satisfactorily yeah. and quickly, then poison arrows might start flying, and there was no antidote. And so the leader would be the one, like um, the person Gao, so Gao with a click in front of his name, Gao. You know, he he said the role of the leader partly is to is to settle quarrels, and the leader doesn't quarrel. For those who are not familiar, including myself, with the word borrow, what do you mean? Uh, so did I, I must have mispronounced, quarrel, quarrel. Oh, quarrel. I do apologize. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right, that makes more sense. That the, makes leader, more sense. the leader doesn't quarrel. Got you. Interesting. Yeah, I thought those two words ran together to be mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, that, so I was going to ask about challenging situations, right? Like tough, tough calls, you know, and, you know, and, and that, yeah, I mean, I'm interested. In how do they? So that's that's finding concepts. Don't quarrel. What about actual practical delivery? Especially if there was like wrongdoing in the tribe. Let's say, as an example, a man slept with another person's wife or something like that. Like, how was things like that? How do they resolve something like that? What is a resolution? How do you settle? That? So the the other bushman, the older bushman, seventy year old, who I sat down in the yeah. Kalahari and talked to, was a person by the name of Kompsu. And I got around to asking Kompsu, so what, what did Bo, he led through the discussion to say that his grandfather, Bo, was the leader. And, and then, I, then I turned to the topic of what you've taken us to. So what if, what if a, a dispute wasn't resolved? Or I said, in a, in a group of 25 to 30 people, mm. I, I imagine there's differences that occur that are hard to resolve. What did Bo do about that? And he said he had an approach of three warnings, three warnings. And, and as a HR executive, that's what we teach. <laughs> and Comps has been nowhere through, nowhere near workplaces in his entire life. Yeah. So he's recalling the approach of, of his society. And so, so what, what did Bo, Bo do? And he said, well, he, yeah, he had these three warnings. And I said, what happens if, after the third warning, the person didn't uh, fix the behaviour that was offensive. And the answer was that he was the person, let's say a he, was kicked out of camp. Like, in other words, go live on your own in the Kalahari, see what you think about that. Mm. Um, that the reasons asked him why might someone be, be ostracised and then uh, expelled was either if you were messing up with the environment, mm. um, and that might be that, I couldn't believe it, but an example he gave was affecting the waterholes, but also maybe a more understandable one was if someone decided to light a grass fire on their on their own rather than as a small community deciding where we're going to light our grass fires because grass fires would then cause grass to shoot and that would attract the antelopes, which would make hunting easier. But he said that was a community decision, not not a maverick to decide Right. Um, you know what the approach might be. The the other example that he gave was had a beautiful expression. If you are causing a pain in someone else's heart, um, we would have more colloquial expressions than that. But it's beautifully mm. expressed that if you're really difficult to live with, or being a nuisance, persistently so, and if you def- 
de denied the three warnings, then you were asked to leave camp. Now, the other Bushman Gow told me that yeah, you, you were kicked out of camp, but if there was another camp of relatives who might take you in for a while, and then in a few months, if you apologised to your first group and if you apologised to the leader, Bo, and then Bo might accept your backing camp. But that, that's a, and, and that, like holding people to account uh, about behaviour that we accept and the performance we accept, that is an, a persistent role of leaders, not that you need to do every day of the week. Yep. You couldn't imagine that or there's more fundamental issues if you're doing it every day of the week with one person or, or separate people. But occasionally you're asked that that does fall to you as a leader, hmm. whether you're a team leader of five, six, seven people, whether you're a, an owner of a business of 20, 25 people or in a division, large organisation, occasionally, and it can only fall to you hmm. To hold people to account, have the standards of behaviour and and enforce politely, but building up to the ultimate sanction, which in our case is termination mm. of employment. It's interesting. I was it's similar but very different. I was talking to a high performance coach in, who uh, works in the Australian sailing team, and I was talking to him about uh, you know navigating those difficult conversations with athletes when they haven't made the mm. cut as it were mm. wow and he, and he said um he said it's actually not difficult because what's really communicated clearly is what's the standard mm. and actually he says they're not that difficult he says if you're unprepared and, and it, they're, they're always he says if it comes as a, as a surprise <laughs> then they've done something fundamentally wrong at, at a kind of organizational structural mm. level. And I think it kind of speaks to that in some regard, Andrew, like being clear on what those warnings are or what's what the yeah. standards are. And um, yeah, I think it, it's really powerful because I think that's also one of the most challenging things about being a leader where you now become responsible for enforcing the standards of the group. And I see, you know, in taking that change, going from someone who's part of the crowd, as it were, who's now in charge of, you know, yeah. part and responsible for the for the, the, the you know, acceptable behavior within the crowd that can be a very uncomfortable transition um yeah. and and very difficult to do especially you know i'm thinking about people in our audience who've gone from being an operator within a business who now decided to go out and become the business owner or drive you know that that kind of thing it looks simple on paper actually can become yeah far more challenging from the actual practicality or delivery you know what i mean yeah, it can do, and that, that's, and I guess that's an example of, of the of the change in power, isn't it? Whereas you were a peer, and that mm. required a different style of relationship, and then now you're the leader, <clears throat> and so there's a a different power relationship, and I think the challenge to a person then is to to adjust to that as quickly as you possibly can, but also don't then some people go too far in throwing their power around and, and that, mm. that that's destructive so it says okay i've shifted my power relationship i can be friendly but i'm probably no longer a friend like i was um but i, I don't need to be a tyrant you know, i don't need to throw my weight around what one of the things back to because it might it just triggered something you said about yeah, the um, having those conversations if people aren't up to standard. Yeah, it was when performance, let's say, or style of the way people were operating, wasn't acceptable to the leader. 
you know, I, I had to learn to get more comfortable with those conversations. It was never my favourite thing and it didn't become my favourite thing of counselling and having, you know, poor performance conversations. But what I found to be helpful and other people might find is that if I started, which is really the three warnings, if I started in uh, a kindish sort of way but direct, direct enough that might be, um, you know, uh, Chris, let's, let's say the person's name's Chris, Chris, I just noticed something that, gee, I, I, don't, I don't know if that was the best way to handle that. Or, you know, the way you just spoke to a team member in that meeting this morning, or that deliverable just now, you know, wasn't up, wasn't up to scratch. What, what could we do to fix that next time? Then, then I found if you had that style of conversation where the person was clear, clear on what you were pointing out, but then what that allows the leader is, one, it is one of those just should be okay conversations. But then it allows, you're allowing the other person to make choices then, that if, if they don't pick up that message and continue to talk rudely to their colleagues, then that says to you, okay, well, I, you know, I gave them a chance. I gave them the choice. They're making a behavioural choice. The next one, the next conversation I have is going to be more direct. You know, and that leads to then the third would be if, if that happens again, you know, then, then we'll be having a different conversation. And one of the conversations might be whether you stay as part of the team or not. So it, it, allowed, it actually allowed me as the, as the manager to be more comfortable by thinking, yeah, I, I gave the person the benefit of observation. I didn't hold it as a secret until one ultimate final conversation. Yeah, which, which can happen if the leader doesn't share their observation along the Correct. way. Yeah, yep. so so it does transfer a lot of the responsibility to the individual who's working for you. Yeah, yeah, I think it's um, yeah, certainly it's an uncomfortable piece, and it's it's certainly an area which makes me sweat a lot when I uh, <laughs> when I have to do it. So it's, uh, so well, Andrew, I know you've turned these interviews, these lessons into first leaders, your uh, most recent publication. What I'm interested to know is from writing that from, you know, all the interviews, what are some of the lessons that you can see are now directly applicable, relatable to the world we live in now, in particular, you know, for someone who was maybe kind of sceptical about this approach, you know, we've got this hybrid highly technological, um, very separated in many regards when it's a remote and um, you know individualised workforce. What are some of the key lessons that you see are relatable that we, we could learn a lot from or we could even implement? Yeah, so from these interviews, the structure of the book is 11 principles, <clears throat> which right. are these common, common dimensions. Um, and then if we... If we looked at, at, and at the end of every chapter, I give the practical so what's for business leaders. Yep. Uh, so in each chapter at the end, there might be seven, eight actions that can be taken as a consequence. So if we look at one prompted by your question, uh, particularly linked to, to hybrid sort of work arrangements, yes. uh, one of the standouts of these societies and therefore the leaders is the amount of time, effort and resources invested in social harmony, <clears throat> social wow. bonding and keeping their group together. Uh, you know, human dynamics means that it can shift dramatically, can't it? Uh, whatever our work experience or 
maybe in sporting groups or whatever, but let's say work experiences and the teams we've worked in, things can be going along beautifully and then something happens in the dynamic. Mm. And, that, and that happens in, obviously, the human experience uh, from the dawn of history, that if mm. we're working with or living with other bright individuals who have their own motivations and interests in life and personality styles, it can shift. Well, the only way you can overcome that, I think, and the absolute lesson from First Nations leaders is to invest in activities which will keep people together and um, make it a positive dynamic and help to resolve differences. So they, and, and, and these have yeah, big implications for, for business leaders and owners that says yeah, you, you cannot have a harmonious group unless you engage in bonding activities and initiatives. And they go from, let's just say two examples, they go from the way in which humans bond is through chit-chat. So chit-chat means topics of conversation other than tasks, you know, technical. So they're other than sales pipelines and sales calls mm. and inventory, inventory management and uh, production targets. They're, they're important conversations. Keep doing those. But then we need to have enough chit-chat about interest and what makes that person who they are, as well as organisational chit-chat, you know, what meetings you might have just been in or things that are on your mind where you might be taking the business. Unless we engage in chit-chat, we cannot be bonded. And so if we look at the science of, you know, ancestral peoples, that they invested big time in easy chit-chat. And that often happened when a task group was going out to, to gather. And because we chit-chat, the other species, like the, the other social species, they bond through physical grooming. But our hands are, are so often free, we could be picking up nuts under a nut tree or tubers digging out tubers in the ground we can still bond by easy chit chat or if we go to the water hole in the late afternoon to collect water we chit chat while we're there and on the way there and back mm. so leaders who don't engage in chit chat uh, their relationships will be damaged well relationships with their their people their customers their their own managers their um so that's one level. The other level in terms of bonding and investment um, are things like the, the series of festivals that people might have or in Aboriginal society, trading camps. Now, trading camps where people trekked for miles together at, across the, the continent, you know, there, there was a whole uh, web of trading, trading routes and networks. Um, so we... Uh, I heard a story even just the other day that ochre from, so you live on the Sunshine Coast, there was ochre um, in, in that east coast of Australia that ended up across the other side of the continent, you know, through passing on pace, passing on through through trading networks. Now, trading networks also serve to keep on decent relationships with your neighbours uh, because if you're hosting a trading camp, the point of investment of time and effort and resources if, if you're hosting the trading camp and there's going to be hundreds of people gathering in a month or so, mm. then, then you had to invest a lot of time in gathering enough food uh, to, to host the event. Or if you're hosting a wedding or, or in, in North America, the Mohawk Society, the, the annual strawberry festival, you know, then, then you, you had to invest a lot. And so the, the implication for workplace leaders 
is to spend a little bit of time and money, um, whether it's a, a Friday afternoon or Friday lunchtime barbecue or, or a morning, take the opportunity that when someone new joins, have a morning tea. And back to your yeah, original observation, a morning tea of your team, uh, back to your original observation was in the hybrid world. You know, that, that's not the most natural environment for humans. Mm. And so, you know, there, uh, well, I, I think there needs to be enough time where people are, are in the office, they're in the office together, that they're seeing each other, spending time together. And on those days when they are back together, don't make it all tasks, have enough time where there might be one, one of those days you have a team lunch and invest a little bit of time and, and money, uh, the budget, in, in that uh, harmonising and bonding a group. A group can't be bonded unless we invest the time and effort in doing so. Mm. I think it's, it's really interesting that I think um, I was hired recently in one of the firms I work with. They, uh, they do these big get-togethers on a quarterly basis. Mm. And I just thought they bring all these people from across the country and they bring them together. I was like, oh, what, a, what an environmental nightmare. And, you know, they spend thousands of dollars, but they put us up in nice hotels. And I'm like, on one part, really enjoy it because it's kind of like it's, I've got a two year old, so it's lovely to go away for a couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the other part, I, you know, I was like, so wasteful. But, you know, as a new hire in particular, I found that it was actually what how it had me be able to really get as it were or cement what the culture of that business was and and it, and it was actually those events which helped demonstrate the priorities of the business beyond what what was spoken if that makes sense very much so isn't it and i th i think that, that was something i'd really overlooked and i had to change my mind on in fact i got to a point where i'm like far out these are really critical actually mm. And I think, Andrew, I'm certainly guilty of the point where I, I kind of devalue chit-chat. Like, we're like, let's get down to business, you know, kind of, Andrew. Like, we've got the agenda here, you know. Good to see you. Like, you know, it's been, it's been months, but let's get back. You know, like, it's it's quickly becomes about business. And it is tricky, I think, as, as leaders when you're looking for, what's the word, economies or kind of improvements where you kind of demerit that all kind of overlooked them in, in terms yeah, of Yeah, it's a good reminder, isn't it? And and the number of leaders that have you know, given me feedback when I've taken them through the importance and the science of, of bonding, they, they say pretty much what you've just said is that, yeah, I see in the past that I just discounted that as being important, that yeah. I associated it with wasting time for me or the yeah. others. But I can see now that my relationships were compromised and I do see mm. that I need to do it in a different way. So those... Yeah, Monday morning or whatever day it is of the week, those check-ins and how was your weekend and what have you been up to and this is what I've been up to. and Or at the beginning of a meeting, when you notice there's the banter and the chit-chat going on, let, let that run for a little bit. That is all very productive bonding, the social dynamic. Yeah, just contain, contain your impatience as the leader, um, which a few of us have had to learn, haven't we? Mm. Well, I thought it's almost like you have to let yourself enjoy it, actually. Right. Because yeah. I, that's, that's what I, I hear in that personally. But I'm just like, is it's the, because um, it actually, cohesion actually produces better outcomes commercially, I would say. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? And so I think it's actually, you know, but, and I think this is what we find a lot with intelligent performance is that it's often not what you think are the, you know, those big breakthroughs in performance or changes or improvements aren't sometimes very contrarian to what is, you know, mm. um, time saving and et cetera, which is often where we kind of think about how can I do more? 
or quicker and faster and more. Yeah, and I think um, anyway, I think yeah, it's, and uh, and it delivers uh, on performance and it also develops a loyalty and a bonding and obligation to each other, members of the team, to be there yeah, for right. each other and to support and contribute and back each other up and yeah, all of that. That's really really powerful stuff. Well, look, Andrew, I've I've certainly enjoyed this discussion. It's been tremendous, and um, we will put links to your new book uh, below in terms of the podcast. And um, but yeah, for those who are interested in learning more about how the origins of leadership and how we can take um, lessons, inspiration from around the globe, it's, it's really amazing. Like your um, your trip, crikey, you could go into so much, Andrew. Meeting these interesting these three elders, I just envisaged you in the desert somewhere. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure if they quite played out like that, but <laughs> it sounded really romantic. Um, yeah, it's a first lead is, is the book. Um, Andrew, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and thank you so much for sharing the wisdom that you've um, spent so much time and diligence and no doubt money investing into yourself to have yeah. chit chat. It's a pleasure, away. Michael.